sat down and spent a whole morning with Dave Beret, one member of our church, who over these past several years has been president of Dollar General, one of our nation's leading corporations. Amongst the many things that we talked about was Dave's recent involvement in the National Commission on Adult Literacy. Dave said that many of us in business today are tremendously concerned about the issue of literacy in our society. We just don't have sufficiently equipped workers and leaders for the demands of today and of tomorrow. Our concern is that we don't have the equipping happening at the childhood and high school level necessary to make us ready for the challenges and opportunities of our economic, social, and spiritual future. In its recent nationwide study on this topic, this particular commission Dave has been a part of has found that almost 90 million Americans, that's one-third of the population of our, popula- of our, of our people nearly, One-third, 90 million, are ill-equipped to meet the needs of the 21st century workplace. 24 of the 30 fastest-growing occupations require uh, leaders and workers with greater reading and writing proficiencies than the average high school graduate possesses today. Because so many kids are failing to develop the reading and writing skills that they need for their intellectual expansion and for their practical effectiveness in the world, they are dropping out of school at an unprecedented rate. They're growing discouraged, they sense themselves to be failures, and they're dropping out of school. And rather than becoming the well-equipped participants that our society needs, an increasing number of these kids, especially in the inner city, are sliding into the oblivion of empty entertainments, hardcore crime, and the cycle of poverty. This we need to turn around. Cheryl King, the director of the National Commission study, writes this. If we could somehow make it possible for even four million dropouts to earn a high school diploma by 2020, if we could reach just 4 million of them, the fiscal benefit to federal, state, and local governments would exceed $25 billion annually, every year, annually. The potential is there, she writes, to put less stress on our health care system with increased health literacy, The potential is there to improve our children's learning because they have better educated parents. The potential is there is to reduce crime and incarceration, to increase voter participation, and to help all adults in America reach higher. The message is that we could address so many ills and could seize so many more opportunities if more tutors were available to help with literacy in our schools if our schools were more fully resourced to teach, if all American households would take far more seriously than seems to be the case today the business of reintroducing ourselves and our young people to the wonderful world of the written word. And yet if literacy counts for something significant here in the United States, and it obviously does, How much more does it matter all across the face of the developing world? Do you realize 
that nearly one billion people worldwide, nearly one-sixth of the population of this planet, cannot read or write. Cannot read or write at all. Two-thirds of these people are women. And because they are the ones who more often than not raise the children and do the educating of the kids, the cycle of illiteracy continues on and on, generation after generation. Complicating this reality is that there are just so many languages in which somebody could possibly learn to read or write. Conservative estimates suggest that there are close to 7,000 different mother tongues spoken. Each one of the dots on that map represents one of those centers of language. In fact, if you were to look at a map of the world and you were to pick or to picture the countries, not by their geographical size as that map shows us, but rather by the number of different languages spoken in that country, This is what the world would actually look like. This is what the map would look like. Look at the United States up there in the left-hand corner, that little light blue-shaped country. Life's complicated here, right? It's complicated enough for us here. But in terms of language density or language multiplicity, we've got nothing like the challenge that is faced by the people and cultures of other worlds. Look at Africa. Look at Southeast Asia. Look at that huge swath of yellow at the lower right hand that represents Indonesia. And you get some sense of the complexity of those cultures. A few of us from the church were in Southeast Asia just this past January. And it really hit us what the challenge there was. Here is an area about two-thirds the size of the United States in terms of land mass, but a place where more than 500 languages are spoken. Can you imagine if 500 different languages were raging around in our culture? Most people in these parts of the planet have some ability to speak one of the larger uh, national languages or international languages, but they have no clue how to read or to write that language in most cases. Vast numbers of people don't even have a written alphabet in what linguists would call their own mother tongue. That is, they've grown up speaking a language, maybe in their little tribe or in their village or their people group, but they don't have a a written alphabet to record that language, to advance that language. In other words, there are no books in the language by which they really interpret life. There is truly no efficient means for these people to learn about the changing ways of the world. There's no really effective way for them to learn about health care precautions and the like. There's no way for them to pass on their own history and culture to the next generation short of of oral tradition. And this has got huge implications for their development or lack thereof. For one thing, it means that even when globalization brings some kind of opportunity to their nation, huge numbers of these people can't climb on the economic escalator. Why? Well, because the first step onto that rising Uh, scheme of things is this ability to read or to write, to express themselves 
in written language. They cannot fill out a job application. Just think about that basic need. They cannot follow written instructions to to learn a new trade or a, a new capacity. They can't interpret a contract or follow a bus schedule. They can't figure out what their protections are underneath the law. They cannot read health or drug information or information about how to more effectively care for their children. They can't avoid being ripped off uh, on exchange rates, and they are routinely exploited by other people who understand they've got disabilities in all these areas. But there's another implication, too. Millions of people can't get on the economic escalator, but they can't get on the spiritual escalator either. Lacking basic literacy skills, lacking a written scripture in the language they know best, they depend for their spiritual understanding upon the preaching and teaching of some Uh, imam or shaman or other religious leader with no way of checking that person's point of view against a larger tradition or frame of reference. They are subject to the swaying influences of almost any kind of ideology espoused by a charismatic leader. 300 million people in this world That represents one-third of all the languages out there. 300 million are still waiting for a Bible in their own mother tongue, in the language of their heart, in the words that they know most intimately to express experience. Many years ago, I had a personal experience that prepared me to understand a little bit better the importance of hearing the Word of God in your own mother tongue. I was a youth pastor in Northern California, and I was teaching a group of middle schoolers a Bible lesson, and it was on the topic of the Good Samaritan. And I got up, and I did my thing and told my story, and I was very encouraged that, you know, that they were tuning in at least as much as a group of 13-year-olds hopped up on Coca-Cola gummy bears and hormones are going to. And they even asked a few questions, which encouraged me that I had gotten through in some way. And, and then I went to sit down. And then up stood one of the eighth graders, a young boy by the name of Jim Anderson. I'd asked Jim if he would be so kind as to, you know, to, speak, to speak about this parable from a junior high kid's perspective. And Jim reached into his blue jeans. He pulled out this kind of rumpled piece of paper. And and on it, Jim had written his translation of the story of the Good Samaritan. And Jim got up there, and he was trembling. I remember the paper was shaking because he was was shaking. He was scared being up in front of his peers this way. And there there was a lot of ums and ahs and stumbles in his talk. But he basically got through it. He he talked about how a kid at a a school had... um, had been accosted in the hallway by a bunch of cruel jocks and they'd dumped his books and they'd slammed him up against the lockers and he'd collapsed down and he was lying there in this disheveled position and very humiliated, embarrassed and and, uh, out of sorts. And, And down the hallway comes a math teacher, but the teacher's rushing fast to get to class and kind of walks on by, and, and then down the hall comes the president of the class, you know, a popular, reasonably popular kid, and he kind of looks at him like this and goes on by, and then all of a sudden, this geeky kid comes walking up, and he stops, 
And he recognizes this guy on the floor as of being of a different clique, social clique, but he stops. And Jim said he got down on the ground and he helped gather up the papers and put all the books back together, picked up some of the books and helped the guy to his feet and walked with him to class and then checked up on him at lunch hour. I'm not sure Jim told the story as well as I just did, frankly. I mean, he murdered the English language at places. Uh, There were a lot of hesitations, poor eye contact, just was reading the paper. And so when he sat down, I quickly got up to my feet, you know, to sort of help sort things out and interpret it and kind of comfort Jim. But before I could open my mouth, there was this explosion in the room of animated conversation. I mean, like I had never heard in in, in that youth group before. I mean, the kids were talking to each other about the story and how they'd seen things like that happen and how how it really really struck their heart that they they had been that kid who walked by in the corridor before and a few of them even admitted they'd been like those bullies. And then some of them had been down on the ground. They totally got it. Totally got it. The message of the Bible in a way that I don't think I ever was able to give it to them in my polished, theologically informed, educated way. In a sense, you know, on that day in that middle school room, the word became flesh for those students. It went from being this airy-fairy, out-there, sort of slightly understood concept to being truth in their own heart language. And they understood it. I mean, they got it. It was God speaking to them in middle school speak. And and it was a little bit like that, that episode we read about in the book of Acts. You probably remember it from Acts chapter 2. How there were all of these people, very diverse, speaking different languages from various parts of the world, the book of Acts says, when suddenly they began to hear the wonders of God being declared in their own tongues. And the Bible says 3,000 people came to personal, life-changing faith in Jesus that day because they heard the wonders of God in their own tongues. Out of that youth fellowship, that middle school group, would come one day Christian high school teachers, business people, parents, a Christian staff member at the White House in Washington, more than a few pastors and youth workers. I know because they still write to me. I still hear from them. Because they heard the language. They heard the word in their mother tongue. Brothers and sisters, all across the world today, there are millions of people who have grown up in a pretty tough school. Enculturated in beliefs that keep them chained to ancestor worship, to fearful superstitions, to brutal social patterns, millions of people on this planet just can't see a different way of life. They're vulnerable to the spread of these violent ideologies and these crazy Uh, approaches to getting ahead in life and these ways of thinking that they're just locked into aren't doing them any favors they cannot learn about the love of the one overarching God 
They cannot discover the power of forgiveness. They cannot learn the path of justice and social development that the Bible has brought forth. Every place the word of God has really taken root in a society. It's brought forth new life and civilization and culture and possibilities, even if the places where it has most grown through the years have forgotten those roots. These people around the world can't find hope because they lack the literacy they need to get on the economic escalator, the socioeconomic escalator, and because they lack a Bible in their own mother tongue, in their own heart language that would put them on the spiritual escalator also. This is why, for the very same reason that our church keeps doing middle school ministry and youth ministry in general, this is why we also, over the years, have thought it very important to keep investing tens of thousands of dollars through our mission fund in the work of an organization called Wycliffe Bible Translators or Wycliffe International. Since its founding in 1942, Wycliffe has become one of the most sophisticated, seasoned, strategic forces for global change I've ever heard of. With more than 2,000 Bible translations completed or underway right now, with a battery of, of technologies now speeding the uh, translation work. It's like going into the headquarters of Google. I went into one of these centers where the, where the computers were crunching the data and they were spitting out tools and, and breaking down language, understanding languages with all of this stuff now being brought to bear on the issue. Wycliffe now has in its sights the complete translation of the last unreached language by the year 2025. Think of it. The Bible in every heart language, in every mother tongue. Wycliffe's mission vision is very big, and its strategy is remarkably simple. Let me, un let me unpack it for you, break it down for you. Wycliffe hires or educates linguists. It finds these people whose whose brains around the subject of language work like virtuoso flute players and musicians are able to do with dots on the page that just look like gibberish to me. They find these linguistic minds, and, and they develop them, and they put, bring them to bear on breaking down, analyzing, interpreting scores of formerly off-the-radar languages. They then find people who speak those particular mother tongues. And they partner with them in developing a written alphabet for the language if it doesn't have one. And then a Bible translation and literacy training materials in those heart languages. Then with these materials, they equip other people as literacy workers. Uh, these people then go back into the remote villages. In many cases, they are very remote where their people live and they teach their brothers and sisters and cousins and aunts and uncles and everybody else to read and write in their own language, in their own heart language, in the one they're most motivated uh, to, to find uh, those skills for. And they also do this by helping them study the Bible. 
The explosive growth of the church outside the Western world today, and we get fooled sometimes. We see church attendance in some congregations dwindling. I'll tell you something. There is a Pentecost going on outside the Western world. In Africa and Asia, the church is growing more explosively than McDonald's hamburgers. I mean, it is just going and going. And the tremendous global growth of the church and the slow climb up out of ignorance and poverty and ill health of people outside of the Western world is being powerfully, powerfully fueled by the work of Wycliffe and other Bible-translating, literacy-oriented organizations like them. So here's the question. Here's, here's the question that I'm building up to with all of this data this morning. What if we, what if we sitting here could really help to do something about this literacy problem? You know, maybe you want to do that just around the corner. Maybe you want to volunteer as a tutor. Uh, contact our juvenile justice ministries or our missions department and ask about tutoring opportunities. Where, where could you go to help somebody really become more literate before they finish high school? There will be opportunities uh, locally. Uh, but maybe your heart is for someone even beyond the local area. Maybe you want to invest yourself a little bit more in this next year in our mission fund, which makes the expansion of that literacy and Bible translation work possible. What, for example, what if you and I could help strengthen more people like the man named James that Chip Hetty, Tom Mallon, and I met in um, Southeast Asia in January? James came from a village in which there had been a Bible translator. There had been a literacy worker uh, worked there. The only problem was that some of the local people were scared of him and intimidated by him, and they murdered him. Uh, they killed him one day. James, however, was a young man who'd already seen the transformative power of Bible translation, of literacy training in his neighborhood, in his, little, in his area. And so he, he volunteered when they were looking to go back to travel great distance and to immerse himself in a two-year master's level linguistics and literacy training program so that he would be equipped to become one of those mother tongue translators and then to equip literacy workers to, to, to revolutionize life in his community. And he was just finishing the training process and about to head back when we met him. What if we could strengthen, equip more people like that? What if we could, over these next years, start funding scholarships through our mission fund for more Jameses, more of these heroic people carrying the life-giving word into their part of the world? Or what if you and I could help to underwrite the start and the completion of a whole new Bible translation, a New Testament translation in a language that doesn't have the Scriptures right now? We could do this. We could help to fund this and make it possible that several years from now, maybe it's you that goes off on that short-term trip to some part of the world, to one of the golden lands of Southeast Asia. And you're there, physically there, when the, that church leader comes and they open the first box 
of Bibles in their mother tongue, and you're there to see with your own eyes, or maybe you're back here watching it on video, I promise you, there'll be a video, uh, of that church leader and those local people just literally jumping and singing and, and crying with joy over this word now come to them in this way. That's what happens every time people are being given a Bible in their own mother tongue. You can make this vision a reality. This is not a pipe dream. You can make it a reality through the commitment that you make over this next year to the mission fund of Christ church. The Bible teaches that once upon a time, somebody reached across a very, very great distance to bring us the word. Someone made a very great sacrifice, the Bible teaches, so that the people of a few small villages in a very remote part of the planet, a place called Palestine, Israel, might hear of the truth and grace of God in a fresh way. That donor brought grace and truth itself in a language that those people could understand. Jesus came speaking Aramaic, the mother tongue of the land. Um, Everybody had a little bit of Greek, maybe a, a, a little bit of other languages, but Aramaic was the mother tongue, and Jesus came speaking it, telling the truth of God in that tongue. And even though that gift he made to them seemed very, very small, it was anything but that. Because this word, you see, was the glorious power of God unto human salvation. And what started in those little villages, the transformation that happened in those first hearts as the word word became implanted in them, eventually rose up and began to spread out until it overturned all of the major institutions of the Roman Empire and opened doors of literacy and education and economic opportunity and political power and influence to millions and millions of people. And for all of the failures acknowledged of the church through, the, through time, it just takes one look at all the universities and the hospitals and the orphanages and the leprosariums and the other works of charity that flowed up out of the inspiration of that word and are still blessing the world today, still shading and bearing fruit in the world today, one glance there tells you something about the potential when that word, the seed of that word, is planted deep in the mother tongue of someone. As you sit here today, do you understand that this word has not finished his movement. Do you understand? You can be part of that movement. (laughs) Even sitting right here, you can be part of that movement. Do you see, do you hear that Jesus still says to you and to me, come, follow me, and let's change this world.